Take a little time, adjust the body, feel free to stand. Feels a little cool in here. Cam, would you turn the thermostat maybe to 67? Nice to be with everyone, the brave folks in the room, all of you online. Minnesota or Minneapolis is a bit of a mess with all the rain and the melting of snow. It's hard to navigate out there. So tonight we'll have small groups a little bit later, and uh, so I'll save the last 20 minutes and just a reminder, I kind of made a big deal of it last week, but just a reminder that being part of the Buddhist studies means staying for the small groups, whether you're online or here in person. And maybe I'll just give the theme now. Of course, you can share, discuss in your two to three minutes whatever is up for you in your practice that seems relevant. But what I thought would be especially useful, if it seems relevant for you, you know, we, um, the homework for last week was just to memorize the seven factors and to practice bringing them to mind. So that could be something you just report, like what happened when you brought it to mind while you were sitting or during daily life. Did you notice resistance? Were you interested in that resistance? Was there any positive effect? And then the other bit of homework was to really make a study, given what the Buddha says, the pointing out instructions about what awareness is, present moment awareness is, what have what was your experience? Do you have confidence that you have that capacity to be awake or to be aware? What does that look like, feel like in your experience? How does it change things? To be open, to be reflectively aware, oh yeah, this is being known. So we're knowing what the mind is knowing, knowing what the mind is doing. And then one last thing that might feel appropriate to talk about in this small group is, you know, the dynamic dual. More and more, I think teachers say something like wisdom and awareness, right? Bringing together, talking together about the first two factors, mindfulness or mindful awareness and this quality of investigation, which really has that flavor of sincere interest. I looked up the word sincere today, free from pretense, deceit, and hypocrisy. Actually, that's pretty good for what we want like that. Like there's something here and now that is deserving of our sincerity, or you could say humility. And and whatever it is, it needs a soft touch. It can't, you know, it, we have to let the mystery, the reality of the moment reveal itself more and more. A lot of the teachings, all of the teachings from the Buddha, they're not meant to be metaphysical truths. You know, like even the three characteristics that I mentioned toward the end of the guided meditation, like noticing the changing nature of experience, the activity of the body and the mind, 
or noticing that whenever there's identification, immediately the heart has a little squeeze. It's something heavy. Just synonymous with identification or attachment is a sense of somebody holding something, something heavy, feeling something heavy. And that when we allow experience just to reveal itself, it, it really, we see it more and more as a ephemeral unfolding that's not very personal at all. But those perceptions, those ways of relating to experience are there taught by the Buddha to support this letting go, this letting go of craving, this letting go of any dependence on our experience, on existence itself. And the thing is, we don't have to understand what that's about. We just have to trust the process. Like, do we trust recognizing that this is being known? Seems pretty trustworthy, right? It's not gonna, you know, it's not dangerous to train the mind to recognize, oh, it's like this now. This is being known. And the investigation, like, to have that humility and that sincere interest, like uh, that quote I read from Sylvia Borstein, that there are secrets here that are waiting to be revealed. Like, why would it be unskillful? Like, if life is, if it's dangerous to be intimate and let life reveal itself, we're totally screwed already. So it's definitely worth checking out, like, is it safe to be interested in in the present moment? And we should be able to, this is what, you know, we'll talk, I'll talk about this next week, energy effort into joy, that unflagging energy, persistence, that willingness to persist and being awake, aware, and interested, that steadfastness is a natural arising. It's not something we have to contrive. Oh, got to really try hard. We're really noticing the energy of steadfastness, the energy of persistence, because wisdom does sense that there's something to wake up to, there's something to see that hasn't been seen, And it has the flavor of freedom, of liberation, in a way that's surprising. Even surprising to somebody who is a Buddhist scholar and really is fluent in the teachings, the experience of that freedom is surprising. The deepening of insight is always surprising, even if we know the map, know exactly what to expect because we've studied it. Oh yeah, this is happening. That's just like the Buddha said. Now this, but when, when the heart releases some, lets go, drops. It's like uh, the example that's often given is we've been wearing a heavy backpack so long we forget we're wearing it. And then when insight deepens, understanding deepens. It's like the backpack or part of the backpack is just dropped. Some of you remember this probably because it's uh, a really interesting experience when you've been backpacking all day with a heavy backpack and you're exhausted by the end of the day 
but you take off the backpack and it's you have a really funny bodily experience like I could jump seven feet right because all of a sudden that 40 pounds or whatever it was is not on your back <laughs> and uh, you feel like you can hop boulders and you know, do all kinds of stuff and it's a little surprising because before you took it off you thought you were exhausted and I mean I'm exaggerating a little bit but I, I definitely remember that experience So those are just some thoughts about the small group tonight. I also wanted just to quickly address Kate um, sent in a question via email about how one might use the seven factors during a retreat. Uh, they're going to be going on a longer retreat later this year. And uh, yeah, remember a lot of these maps are, there's sort of two ways that the maps from the Buddhist teachings can be used. One is to intentionally bring them up, which is something you might want to do while you're on retreat, is just find a time every day, maybe even a couple times every day, just to run your mind through the seven factors. And a meditative, it could be during a walking session, could be during a sitting, could be in a more relaxed pose, but just to bring each of the seven factors to mind contemplate what you know about that factor, like what does the Buddha or your teacher say about that factor, in a way where you're using your actual experience. So the words are shaping how you're paying attention to the present moment so, to, so as to discern that factor in its you know, present moment expression. So we use words, concepts, in the service of seeing what we haven't seen about mindful awareness or investigation or that unflagging persistence or joy, tranquility, concentration, or equanimity. And then the other way is simply to notice as you're being aware of what's coming and going in your practice, just be aware of the recognition of these different factors. And you can even drop in questions, are the factors present? Are they balanced? Or you might, over time, have a sense of strengths in your practice and weaknesses, like, I don't really have much of that enlivening experience of joy. I, I know tranquility, I think I know the experience of concentration and equanimity, but I'm not sure what the Buddha means by piti, or joy, rapture. So, you know, that might just, that curiosity might just naturally arise in your practice, like, is this joy? And, and learning how to be interested in certain qualities of mind, even if they're not the predominant quality in that moment. Because it's a karmic act, what we're interested in, what we pay attention to, and how we pay attention. So even though we might be sitting still and in a, in a very receptive way, still in subtle ways, that process of the mind is choosing what 
to pay attention to, to some degree, even paying attention to what's predominant, in a sense, is a karmic choice. And then how the mind pays attention, like with what qualities, with what attitude. So, yeah, so basically, you know, the two ways to work with it in retreat would be formally choosing, scheduling it during your day, you know, to bring it up, your little study session, using your own experience to study the seven factors. And then the other way is just to notice when the factors and the, the map itself presents itself. It's like the inner Dharma coach who presents the map or some aspect of the map. Notice the tranquility. I mean, not so much in words, of course, but there's that, oh yeah, this is tranquility. And then there may, the next moment might be in, you know, it's sort of, uh, the seven factors are a little bit holographic. So, so when I understand the tranquility that's there in a moment in my practice, really clearly as one of the seven factors, then generally the wisdom awareness broadens out and there's a sense of all seven working together. Even though, Initially, it was just the interest in the tranquility, the recognition of tranquility, or the recognition of energy, or joy, or whatever it might be, stillness, concentration. But then that sense of, oh yeah, and this is the balance, and this is the ease of tranquility, and this is the lightness of joy, and this is that steadfast, committed, persistent interest, investigation, the awareness that holds it all together. Awareness is the balancing factor of the seven, the one that we can't have too much of. The others, you know, keeping in balance, the three energizing, the three tranquilizing. And then uh, another person, Michael, wrote in about um, just uh, wanting to get clear about mental states, versus mental objects, and whether that includes feeling tone. Yeah, so, you know, in a sense, this is about the fourth foundation, the Buddha's discourse on mindfulness. And there's mindfulness of the body, and how to be mindful of the body, the physical form, sensation. And there's mindfulness of feeling tone, mindfulness of the mind, And the fourth foundation is mindfulness of mental qualities, mental states. And what's really highlighted in this fourth foundation are the qualities of mind that hinder wisdom and awareness and the qualities of mind that support wisdom and awareness. There's a famous, uh, maybe some of you listened to Joseph Goldstein's talk on um, investigation, but he uh, makes a point of uh, something um, Nagasena uh, said. Uh, Nagasena is a famous character. It's considered part of the suttas, although it happened, uh, I don't know, maybe 100 or 200 years after the time of the Buddha. There was uh, evidently a fully awakened person, and he was sent to a place uh, that had a Greek king because of Alexander the Great had conquered a lot and 
So there was uh, some kingdom, but he, this king evidently was interested in Buddhism. So he went to be sort of a minister or teacher for the king. And uh, the king had done some studies, so he knew some of the teachings, and he asked uh, Nagasena about the seven factors. You know, and I think the question was something, do you need all seven, or is one enough? You only need one, and that's this investigation of the Dhamma, the way it is, right, interest. And so the king, you know, being sort of a sharp guy, said, well, why are there seven? That's <laughs> a good question. And, and uh, Nagasena gives this uh, simile of the sword. He said uh, that, and this is an image that's used throughout different Buddhist lineages, you know, the sword of wisdom. We have a little statue in our office, a Tibetan sort of manifestation of wisdom. Manushri is how it's pronounced, you know, is depicted sitting, you know, in the meditation pose, but with a sword. <laughs> you don't like that? <laughs> the sword of wisdom. And the thing is, uh, all the, 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 what Nagasena said is the other six factors are needed to wield the sword. So the point I'm making here, and I think the Buddha's making, is the basic problem for us human beings, the reason we suffer, and, and we want to hold this lightly, you don't want to just believe what I'm about to say, but you want to use what I'm about to say to check with your own practice. So the cause of our suffering, and I mean all of our suffering, stubbing our toe, being betrayed by our lover, the fact that our heart continues to hurt, be upset that I stubbed my toe, be upset that this person betrayed me, or that I don't have what I want, or I can't hold on to what I do have, is because we don't understand clearly the way it is. Our understanding isn't in alignment with reality, with the way it is. It's out of truth. That's why dukkha, the word dukkha for suffering, the deeper sense of suffering, uh, it's related to the axle being out of true. So the cart just doesn't work very well. There's something clunky or inefficient about how we are in experience because the understanding is off, because of our chronic misperceiving, our chronic misunderstanding, taking what's uh, taking what's impermanent to be permanent, or what's unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, or what's not self to be self, or what's not beautiful, neither beautiful nor ugly, to be beautiful, you know, or ugly, to kind of turn things into these, this dualistic uh, frame of good or bad. So, the, all of the teachings and the practices are for us deluded people who are misunderstanding. They're not, the teachings aren't meant to be truths in some absolute sense. They're useful, upaya, upaya, I think it is pronounced, skillful means. They're skillful means for deluded people. Some of you know this, but Gabe and I were brainstorming great t-shirt 
ideas for Common Ground. We should never follow through with it. But we always, I thought, at least, a good idea was, you know, whatever the the sort of sketch would be, the, the language, the words on the T-shirt would be, a Common Ground, skillful means for deluded people. <laughs> I'm not sure people would find it funny. Probably people who practice would find it funny. But I'm not sure the wider community, and they'd probably sort of be perplexed. But it's really, that's how it is. Like, we... We need these teachings to, be, to help illuminate, to see what we're not seeing. But awakened beings don't need these teachings because as shocking as awakening, surprising as awakening or deepening of insight is, it's not shocking down the road. It's only shocking when there's a seismic shift from delusion to less delusion, right? That's always, because like, what does delusion mean? Delusion means we think we know. And then there's a deepening of insight, and we realize, oh, I guess I didn't know. <laughs> or at least I didn't know what I now know, right? So it's not so much that we find something as much as we realize that what was known isn't the way it is. It's kind of a dropping away of ignorance. Not even so much the mind gaining something, like we say, it can sound that way when we talk about the deepening of insight. Um, one of the important teachers, Tibetan teacher, Turkel Ergen, um, his ocean teacher, he's dead now, but he was quite influential for Joseph and Sharon, and uh, a number of Westerners. And by the way, he's uh, the father of Minger Rinpoche. Some of you know he's been uh, coming to Minnesota most years for the last maybe 10 years or so. Very respected Tibetan teacher. But his father, uh, Tukar Ergen, wrote, When you look for your mind, there's nothing to find. And the not finding is the finding. There's all kinds of teachings like that in Buddhism, you know. But this is like uh, a teaching we get from our teachers. I remember for a while I would go in to see uh, Joseph Goldstein when I was doing one of the three-month retreats. And uh, I think several times he would say, he would remind me, um, it's not about what you find, it's about what you don't find in the practice. And this is that correcting. It's, it's why this factor of discerning the way it is is so central to the path. And then as we learn the other factors, they're just coming back and they're refining the quality of interest. You know, because we mistakenly, initially we mistakenly think I've got to figure something out. So we approach it from a sort of conceptual point of view, try to think our way into insight. Or we have some sort of forceful, we're trying too hard. So you can really see how the other factors, you know, uh, even energy to a certain degree isn't something we do. Really what we do as a practitioner, the first two, and the really useful energy 
effort is something that arises naturally because of the wisdom and awareness, there really is a sense that there are secrets to be a mystery liberation to be open to. And that's the cause for the energy. And the energy, that committedness, the loyalty to the present moment and using the maps of the Buddha to support being more intimate. Because otherwise we're going to open to the present moment in predictable ways. So the reason, because we're a deluded person, meaning we're operating on habit, habits that we don't even realize are habits. Like when you're perceiving the room right now, what you're seeing, what you're experiencing, it doesn't occur to us that this is a constructed experience based on habit. We just think it's the way it is. You know, so if we get a teaching from the Buddha to like soften our visual gaze, all of a sudden we don't have the perception that, oh, I'm in the room with a bunch of my Kamagawa community members. We just see, start seeing shape, color, form. Right? Can you see how the visual experience when it, when we sort of get interested, like we use the teachings just to seeing, seeing is just seeing being known. Or hearing is just hearing being known. It changes our perception. We may not like it initially because it all of a sudden starts to feel weird. Like, I don't recognize this moment anymore. I want to go back to the moment I recognize that's familiar to me. Because we're very comfortable, even if our stories are somewhat or very toxic, at least they're familiar because they've been repeated and reconstructed over and over again. A few more things I wanted to share before um, opening up. This is from Joko Beck, a wonderful Zen teacher who died maybe 10 years ago. She was the uh, head of the San Diego Zen Center for many decades. Our interest in reality is extremely low. No, we want to think, we want to worry through all of our preoccupations. We want to figure life out. And so before we know, we've forgotten all about this moment and we've drifted off into thinking about something, our boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, child, or boss, or current fear, off we go. There's nothing sinful about such fantasizing except that when we're lost in that, we've lost something else. When we're lost in thought, when we're dreaming, what have we lost? We've lost reality our life has escaped us. And that's what we want this week, especially when we're feeling bored, when we're feeling low on energy, right? We don't have the awakening factor of energy, the third factor. Well, chances are we don't, wisdom and awareness isn't operating, which means what's operating is autopilot. Same old, same old. Because it's not that the moment is the same as previous moments, that the process of the mind interpreting the moment, that process is very predictable. 
the kind of meaning our mind is making up, so we're interacting with our partner or our dog or whoever it is that's at home, but the way we're interpreting that relationship is very predictable. So we don't feel like we have to show up because it's boring. It's predictable. So we, we get to this chronic habit of being more and more disconnected, feeling that life is somewhat flat and uninteresting, more and more addicted to things that stimulate us, scrolling, doom scrolling, or looking for an interesting video, or anything to bring some light. But what's actually missing is that capacity, you know, to recognize that capacity, oh, this is an experience being known, and to use some of the teachings, and just generally to use the capacity to be intimate, to kind of it's, it's not so much like <clears throat> wisdom will penetrate into the moment. It's more that wisdom knows how to get out of the way and let the moment reveal itself. Let experience, the reality, the nature of things, and in particular what's subtle, to reveal itself. Because if, if we get in there trying to investigate... It's like the, you know, the amazing number of CSI movies or TV shows, which I'm not that into, but I know about them at least. But anyway, it's like you don't go messing up the crime scene, you know. And it's the same thing with, I mean, it is a bit of a crime scene, but we have to let the moment reveal itself. Because it's all here and now. And <clears throat> what's actually important is the, the process, the lawful, conditional process of the present moment. See, one of the delusions of a mind dominated by our language and our concepts is the sense of Concepts create a sense of things being static or fixed. But what's really going on is something that's in motion. So we don't have to worry, you know, about like connecting with that moment, my idea of that moment. Because that's a wrong idea right from the start, that there's actually a thing to connect with. It's a what what we want to really comprehend is the endless ephemeral flow or movement of what this is. There's not much there, there, or here, here, <laughs> because it's a changing process, as opposed to what our concepts and language tends to create the appearance of things uh, being fixed or solid or permanent substantial in a way that they're just not. And if you're feeling some resistance to what I'm saying, that's the point I'm making, right? That, that we're attached, so it's hard to let the moment reveal itself. So that's the, you know, we want some humility about um, 
how difficult this is for us to step outside of um, just the habits that we have. This is from the uh, Anapanasati Sutta, toward the end of that discourse, Mindfulness of Breathing Discourse, a lot of you know that. Um, the Buddha brings in the seven factors of awakening. Practitioners, on whatever occasion a practitioner abides contemplating the body as a body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, mind objects as mind objects, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world, right? not getting pushed around by our likes or dislikes, on that occasion, unremitting mindfulness is established in one. Abiding thus mindful, one investigates and examines that state with wisdom, that moment with wisdom, and embarks upon a full inquiry into it. Right? It lets the moment be revealed. In one who investigates and examines that state with wisdom and embarks upon a full inquiry, tireless energy is aroused. So the energy arises because the investigation, that interest, that openness, that humility reveals this is interesting. This is relevant. Seeing, you know, there's nothing, humans love learning, seeing, experiencing what we haven't learned or experienced before. It's naturally energizing. Sarah Dowring, some of you know, because we sometimes read her articles, uh, one of the early IMS teachers and one of the great benefactors of IMS and Cambridge Insight Meditation Center in, uh, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, she talks about a time, I think she was practicing in Burma, but somewhere in Asia at least, and she noticed in the middle of the night, I guess there was a light, enough light, she saw one of those lizards that are everywhere in Asia climb up, come in one window, climb up the wall, climb across the ceiling, you know, down and out, I guess, another window. And she just talked about how the mind was so interested. <laughs> As you can imagine, you know, especially being up to And, you know, that edge between fear that when when there's enough interest and enough sense of safety, then that you can really sense like how powerful that interest can be. When it doesn't slide into panic, you know, and then we lose the interest because we're we've sort of tripped into panic. But before we go that far, when something out of the ordinary happens, just really get to know that kind of interest. Like, what kind of interest is the mind capable of? Because that's what arouses the energy, and one who has aroused energy, unworldly rapture, joy arises. And one who is rapturous, the body and mind become tranquil. Right? Because that powerful feeling of rapture or joy, it really gathers the mind. It's like all the fragmented, dissipated uh, aspects of the mind. It's like, no, 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 no. It all comes together, though. Every part of the mind comes together in wanting to be present with whatever it is that the mind is so interested in. And that unification, that coming together of a dissipated mind, is the cause for that ease of tranquility. It's kind of a melting 
of any of that hardness of the heart. And the body starts to mirror that relaxation of the heart. So the body often has a deep tranquility too. doesn't mean that, you know, the injuries and the places that hurt in the body have gone away. It's just there's something in the body and mind that just doesn't want to go anywhere. Just totally content being here and now. So that one of the uh, aspects of tranquility, and we'll talk more about it when we get there later in the course, is that sense, that felt sense of almost like I can't move. But what it is is there's no part of the mind that wants to move. Mentally move, like, like to think about something different than being here and now, or physically move because it's so content, it's so tranquil. And then the the stillness of concentration is like because of that ease, then all of what's extra what's extra in the mind it just begins to settle. And the mind becomes very, very clear and still and silent and peaceful. And the mind learns something in that concentration because concentration, a deeply concentrated mind, it removes, it liberates the mind temporarily from the habit of craving. It creates a kind of temporary um, suppression of that habit of wanting something to be different, wanting the future, wanting to, think, wanting to do anything whatsoever. There's no doing. That sense of a doer doing something ceases and the mind recognizes a kind of balance like the way the mind can now relate to the present moment is new because now it's it's relating to the present moment isn't distorted by being a doer even a meditator being a meditator meditating is a doing so even that's gone when concentration is really deep That's the definition of deep concentration, is when craving, the concentration, the stillness is so strong. And you'll know this because the craving dissipates, you know. So just moving in that direction, you'll get a sense of what it's like when there's not much of an appearance of any doer wanting to do anything. So that's just a nice way to understand concentration doesn't seem like there's anybody wanting to do anything. And that is synonymous with the stillness, the peacefulness, the relative emptiness of a concentrated state. And that allows for this balance, like, oh, this is what it's like to be aware and interested without the awareness and the interest, the investigation being distorted by any doing, anybody, any doer doing anything. Oh, this is this kind of clarity. This, because it's so receptive, it's so non-intrusive, that way of being present, that the mind, wisdom, can see what it hasn't seen. So more subtle, the more subtle nature of experience becomes more apparent. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, 
or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.